Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your weekend is not complete without the first lady of New York radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. The Joan Hamburg Show. Sunday, and of course, a special Sunday, the end of summer, Labor Day Sunday. Who can believe it happened here already? The summer is gone. The weather, if you rented a house somewhere or went on vacation, the weather has been great. Although my son and family live in L.A., and literally, they said, the other day, it was 106 in the sun. It has been exhausting with the hot weather there. But in our part of the world, we have only had like one or two rains and we've had beautiful sunshine. So today for Labor Day, we're going to tell you what's happening in the world of Broadway and I want you to meet the New York Times chief theater critic, Jesse Green. You're going to like Jesse. He's smart and funny, and he's a great writer. He's got a brand new book out, too. So it's you're really going to enjoy him. And he's going to help us decide what we should see during this time of year. Now, if you have a house somewhere, the chances are people are going to come out of the woodwork, even though today, a Sunday, is here, they're going to want to come for the holiday weekend. And why not? The big question is, with us, we have a lot of company, and we go through a lot of food. Every year, with the tomatoes in full bloom, we do a mozzarella, basil, salad. And I'll tell you how we do it. I've given this recipe, like my Thanksgiving Ritz cracker stuffing, this recipe every year. I get the wonderful tomatoes. I grow some and we have um, farm stands all over. Where I live, we have Jim Pike's farm stand. And we go by now, they take all these tomatoes, they put them in bushel baskets or, and you can get them at a great price. So I cut them up. I cut up all the mozzarella, fresh mozzarella in pieces. I chop basil, two big bunches of basil. And I do that with a little kosher salt and everything. And then I cook a box of ziti or whatever you like. I don't use spaghetti for this. I use a pasta that has a shape because then the mozzarella, the tomatoes, the basil, the olive oil, and oh, I forgot to tell you, very important, add a whole bunch of olive oil 
to the tomato basil mozzarella mixture, stir it all up. And then when you're finished cooking the ziti or the macaroni or anything, you drain it, save a little tiny bit of the pasta water, and you put that hot pasta in that mixture and the mozzarella starts to melt and all the wonderful flavors are in it and everyone loves it. And I often do that for a summer lunch. And of course, this is the time of year when you can get away with, on a really good bread, fresh tomato, maybe a little arugula, and mayonnaise. It's delicious. It's nothing. It's simple. So these are just a couple of things that you can do if you're cooking and everyone barbecues. We do, of course, on the grill too, but most of my kids, children, and their friends don't eat meat. So the days of grilling the great big steak in this house are gone. Steak or lamb chops, no. They will do chicken every now and then, and they will do fish. But it's sort of limited. So I will make a turkey meatloaf, and there'll always be something with sandwiches. And turkey meatloaf on a really good bread with ketchup is delicious, and everyone loves it. And you have to just remember, because ground turkey, you want to get the mixture, white and dark meat, can be tasteless unless you really season it. So I sort of cheat and use a lot of ketchup. And my mother's secret was always put in Lipton onion soup. And you mix it in with an egg and a lot of ketchup and not too much salt because the seasoning and everything has salt and pepper and you make a meatloaf out of it. I glaze the top with a little tiny brown sugar and ketchup, add a little broth at the bottom of the pan and put it in a 350, 375 oven until the meat is really cooked through. You don't want rare meatloaf or turkey meatloaf. And I'm telling you guys, it's delicious. And then when you have leftover, you make really good sandwiches with it. Or you can make turkey burgers and do it on buns with cheese, if you like that, tomato, red onion, really good things. So this is the time of year. The farm stands are full. The corn is still spectacular. And everything is good. Our kale is blooming. You know, I came outside the other day and there were two squirrels in, I have these huge planters and where I grow herbs and tomatoes and all that. And the squirrels were right in that box eating away. And I had not seen that before. The deer are everywhere, particularly the little ones. Anyway, there's a lot of good things that you can buy and you can enjoy and you can feel, I hope, optimistic and looking forward to the fall.
with a good sense, if people have had a hard time, and maybe with the weather, the weather is good, maybe with the nice weather and all the opportunities, people can start to really feel good. The kids are going back to school. The job market is supposedly very good. So we're going to wish you a happy holiday weekend and good opportunities for the very near future. We've got a terrific show for you today. Of course, the Joan Hamburg Show is on every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. And as part of our show with our great guests, we also tell you a lot about food, where to eat, where to go. We answer your questions. We share our thoughts on life, on friends, on work. It's all straight ahead. So thank you so much for being a part of our worlds. And we'll be back with lots more. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. And we're all excited. A new theater system. And we need the theater more than ever. It's been hurt like so many other industries. And I want you to meet the chief theater critic for the New York Times, Jesse Green. And Jesse has and is having an amazing career. And he's going to give us a look at what's coming in to the Broadway Times and how you should start getting your tickets now. So, Jesse, Broadway's been having a hard time, like even the restaurant industry, too. Are you optimistic at this point? I'm fairly optimistic. Last year was a transitional year. Uh, you know, the year before had been a complete disaster. There was a uh, 15 months during which Broadway theaters and all theaters were dark with nothing happening and everything moved online. And last season, we started to move out of that in a kind of weird and intermittent and honestly, a little bit chaotic way. The shows had to cancel constantly. People were getting sick. People backstage, uh, there weren't enough people to cover roles. It was very, very difficult. Seems to be a little more orderly. And this fall has a really interesting slate on Broadway and off-Broadway of, uh, of shows of all different kinds to appeal to, I think, a lot of different people. Of course, and we just have to get them up and going. Yeah, exactly. And I think people have gone the other way, too used to sitting on the couch and letting things happen in their living rooms. Well, that's right, Joan. And there is some concern among the producers that they won't be able to attract audiences, even to material that they normally would like. But, uh, you know, the evidence from the end of the previous season, this past spring, is that the crowd-pleasing shows and the shows that get great reviews are managing to fill up. So there, there is hope. I'm with you. I certainly do. Now, if you're looking at what you want to get tickets for, and this is the time when we always get phone calls, mm. you know, like, for restaurant reservations, for theater, 
the movies seem to be losing out a little bit, you know, in terms of people wanting to go. I miss movie theaters. I wish mm. we had those back too. But tell me, if you were going to have your family come in or friends go to buy tickets, what would you be looking at now? Well, that's the thing, isn't it, Joan? I mean, we have family, we have friends, we have aunts who need one kind of thing. We have uh, young friends who need another kind of thing. And Uh one of the things I love about this season, the Broadway season, looking at it, is that there is quite a variety. So we range from, for instance, you know, what is promising to be a really big old fashioned, you know, story musical based on uh, the great movie, Some Like It Hot, with a score by the people who gave us uh, Hairspray. And uh, I think surely that's a big, exciting one that you would you would think of for your out of town visitors. Uh, But on the other end of the musical scale, you have uh, a small and delicate and beautiful show. Usually each season has and there's enough market and uh, prestige to get that going. I saw this one off Broadway. It's called Kimberly Akimbo. It stars Victoria Clark and it's just uh, delicious. So there's there's a wide range there. There's a a production, a revival of 1776 with an all-female cast. So in terms of musicals, it's all over the place. There's a a Korean pop music musical. There's uh, Almost Famous based on the Cameron Crowe movie. You know, a a lot of really interesting stuff. But the plays are really quite a nice variety of um, fun and thoughtful, which is what I like to see. Uh, in a season, both. I, I like, I don't know about you, Joan. I mean, I like seeing a lot of different kinds of things. I don't want to see just one thing. No, that's right. <laughs> but we're lucky because we go to theater all the time. Yes. And many people come into the city or they bring their families in and it's a once or twice a year. I have gotten a lot of calls about death of a salesman at the Hudson. Yes, well, Death of a Salesman, obviously one of the great American plays, but with a, a, a you know, a really relevant twist, I think, which is that it's a, an all-black cast led by the great Sharon D. Clark as Linda Lohman and Wendell Pierce as Willie Lohman and with Andre DeShields uh, in, in the cast as well and uh, pr- obviously approved by the Miller estate. Uh, I think I haven't seen it yet. It was done in London. It was quite quite a big success there. But I think you can imagine the ways in which the themes of, uh, you know, feeling betrayed by your country might play out very well with a black cast. And I'm looking forward to that, as I am to a revival of the the piano lesson by August Wilson with Samuel Jackson and Danielle Brooks in it. Um, And among other revivals, uh, there's. Uh, between Riverside and Crazy, the Stephen Adler Gerges play directed by Austin Pendleton, which won the Pulitzer a number of years ago. But there's also a lot of new plays, uh, including a new play by one of our greatest living playwrights who has said that this may be his last play, Tom Stoppard. And that play is called Leopoldstadt. And that is opening uh, soonest. That's the first of the big Broadway openings. Uh, previews begin September 14th. And it's it's a really interesting story about Jewish life in early 20th century Vienna based on his late in life discovery that he himself was Jewish. He did not know this. It was kept from him. 
Uh, and so uh, to what degree it's biographical, autobiographical, I'm not sure. But, you know, a Stoppard play on that subject has got to be of great interest. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, Jesse, how did you grow up to be Jesse Green theater critic? <laughs> well, the Jesse Green was my parents doing. <laughs> Um, they, they gave me both my names. Uh, and I was always, they tell me that I was always highly critical. So, you know, that makes sense. I, I sort of imagined myself being a judge. I liked deciding arguments and also imposing my will. Uh, as it turns out, being a theater critic isn't really just that. And it was Joan, honestly, it's a too long a story, but it was mostly an accident. I, set out to be in the theater, uh, and and I'd worked in the theater uh, in the 80s uh, on the music side of Broadway shows, and then um, my, my degree was in English, so I was writing, and then I became a journalist, and, you know, one day an editor said, I, I need somebody to cover uh, the theater reviews for a few months while someone's on leave. Will you do it? And I said, no. And I hate, <laughs> I hate writing reviews. And he said, well, I need you to do it, so you're doing it. And, and that was nine years ago. And that's how I started being a critic. I don't really know how the rest happened, but you know, I'd had a long, long time learning how to, how to write. And that's basically what it is. It's, it's writing about your own response to what you see. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't need to agree with everyone. They just need to know who you are and then they can make up their own mind based on knowing, well, he liked that and I hated that, or right. he, he hated that and I loved it. And that's, that's how I grew up reading reviews. I, I knew what I would like based on how I knew the reviewers. Which is always, I mean, and everyone would talk about the reviewers too. Did you read what? And exactly. what did he say? And people <laughs> I did that still even though doing I, that. I, I didn't even grow up in New York and somehow that was part of my family discussion. And, you know, we were all interested in theater and got the New York magazines and newspapers. So, it, it's, it's a great service that these publications do. And I will say, not to toot my own horn, but criticism isn't just for the people who are choosing which ticket to buy. It's for people who will never be able to buy that ticket or, or won't or will only be able to do it once a year when they visit New York. It's really about understanding our culture and uh, giving examples of it and thinking about what these works, many of them very serious works, even if they have comical or musical overtones, uh, about our lives. And uh, for me as a theater nut growing up, that was a wonderful thing. I, I read Brendan Gill and I, I read Clive Barnes and, and all those people. And uh, it, it, I guess somewhere I stored that and it came up. Yeah. And they became members of the family, too. You'd hear right. people say, right, uh, I'm Clive loved blank, like Clive was yeah. their uncle. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or, or uh, oh, she didn't, uh, you know, uh, Edith Oliver, she didn't like that play, but then I don't like her, I don't like her taste. So, yeah, exactly. It was, uh, it was making the larger world of culture something that was part of your intimate and personal world. And I, I loved that about it. And it's something I, I miss, you know, in our current situation where there just aren't a lot of critics left uh, who have professional jobs. Uh, a lot of it has moved online and into Twitter, and uh, that's all fine. But I, I'd like to see more critics and a greater variety of critics than we currently have.
Yeah, I, I'm absolutely with you. I think it's so important. It's an entire part of culture, and we can't let it fall by the wayside. Now, you also write books, and you, you know, it's more than theater, although theater can take up what 90% of your time in the season. But you have uh, well, a new and, book out. Yes, and it's about theater too, and uh, in part. Uh, I am the co-author of uh, a book called Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers. Many of you may know Mary Rogers as the daughter of Richard Rogers. You may know her as the composer of Once Upon a Mattress, a really fine theater composer in her own right. Later, she changed careers and wrote books for young adults, including the Freaky Friday series, which were, you know, tremendously culturally big. And later, she was the chairman of the Juilliard School for many years. So she she had an amazing life right at the center of the theatrical uh, and, and uh, culture of New York in the second half of the 20th century. And I spent a couple years with her before she died, listening to everything she remembered, which was nearly everything, being shocked by it. And when I got my jaw off the ground, I started to write it. That's when she died. But I, I wrote the book after her death based entirely on uh, our conversations. And I have to tell you, it's doing really well, but I, I just think it's hilarious and moving. That sounds really good. Have you seen the Neil Diamond musical or Beautiful Noise? I haven't. It, it had a tryout in Boston uh, and uh, got some nice reviews. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, a lot of shows, most shows that come in, I, I have not seen before, uh, but some of them have appeared off Broadway or maybe I happen to be out of town when they were trying out somewhere. But that's it's like, a you know, a present under a tree or, or something. Just what is this thing going to be? You read about it. You, you, you read the critics out of town. You uh, read the publicity about what they're trying to do. And then you wait. And that's that's certainly one. If you like Neil Diamond, for instance, uh, it's it's pretty much the only jukebox musical this fall. Usually we have a bunch of them, but uh, uh, this is the only traditional jukebox musical telling the story of the of the creator of the songs, Neil Neil Diamond, and it stars the great Will Swenson. So uh, I, I'm ex I'm expecting it to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and then I was curious about Audra McDonald starring in Ohio State Murders. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I should have pointed that out early. That, that that's an interesting play in uh, both for what it is and that it's appearing on Broadway. It's it was written in 1992, and like a lot of plays by you know our, our great black playwrights, it never got to Broadway in its time. And I think we're seeing a revision of that uh, these years. Uh, last year, uh, there, there was a really wonderful production of, of a play like that that, that starred Lachance. And this year, we have this amazing, difficult play by Adrienne Kennedy from 1992 about a, a writer, a journalist, who returns to her alma mater, uh, Ohio State, to talk about uh, the destructive power of racism and then something happens while she's there. I'm not going to give it away. And having Audra McDonald star in it, you know, just makes it a must-see play for the fall. And I also want to say that the theater that she's doing it in used to be called, uh, I don't know, for maybe 80 years, the Court Theater. 
it's kind of a mess of a theater by, you know, recently. They've completely redone it and renamed it now the James Earl Jones Theater, which is thrilling in itself. It is. And, I mean, there's so much. There's Camelot coming back again. Well, yes, that won't be version. until April. That won't be until yeah. April. Uh, and there's lots of – it's still so far away that there's uh, a lot of rumors going on about who who's going to be who's starring gonna... in it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I cannot endorse this rumor. It doesn't seem likely to me. But uh, in a reading of the musical or a workshop of the musical at some point – the uh, leading role was played by Lin-Manuel Miranda. I, I, for one, would love to see that, but we'll, we'll see what happens. That'll be at Lincoln right. Center Theater in April. Uh, we also have a, you know, if we're talking about the spring, we have a Sweeney Todd revival coming up starring Josh Groban, who is, you know, obviously someone who can sing that part, and Anna Lee Ashford, who's a terrific comic actress, and I'm really looking forward to that. They promise a full orchestra which we rarely get anymore and will be thrilling. And, uh, and a new stage version of the musical New York, New York. The, um, yeah. the film musical is supposedly coming. Uh, a new Candor and Ebb musical long after Ebb has died, but Candor's still hard at work in his mid-90s. Fantastic. Yeah. I I, I, do you, yeah. Jesse, do you ever do two shows a day or that's too much? <laughs> Well, I have done it, but it, it is, like you say, Joan, it, it really is too much, especially if I have to write about them, because, you know, I try to keep each show separate uh, and write about them before I have to see the next one. But it doesn't always work and it can get a little exhausting and confusing. There are parts of the season, particularly October and April, when everything is opening and I some, sometimes can't avoid seeing two shows in one day. But I, I really... Honestly, I try to keep it to four in a week at, at, at a maximum yeah, if I can. It's already a lot uh, because I'm not just seeing them. I'm thinking about them. And, uh, you know, it, it takes a long time to think. No, and it takes a long time to write, too. Yes. So uh, as you know. Um, so but I'm, I'm just thrilled at the variety. I haven't even talked about off Broadway, but there's there's just so much for different different tastes. There's going to be a revival this fall of Merrily We Roll Along at uh, the New York Theater Workshop starring Daniel Radcliffe, for instance, um, and a revival of the great Adam Gettle musical. Adam Gettle is Mary Rogers' son, and he wrote mm -hmm. the musical Floyd Collins, which is uh, having a revival. And uh, there's a new David Hare play. There's a, a revival at the public of A Raisin in the Sun. All kinds of great stuff off-Broadway. Right, and theater is alive and well. And we live in the greatest city in the world. It's our obligation to support it because it's the reason people come here from all over the world is to go to 42nd Street or in that neighborhood and drink in all the excitement. Thank you, Jesse. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Joan. You'll come visit us with your new book. Okay, thanks. All right. I'm Joan Hamburg. That's Jesse Green, who's chief theater critic for The New York Times. More after this. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. I love this book. It's called The Barbizon, The Hotel That Set Women Free, and it was written by Paulina Brand, who is an award-winning historian and also a professor at Vassar College. The Barbizon... I went to Barnett College, and in those days, they didn't really have dorms to accommodate everyone. And the Barbizon was where parents from all across America wanted their daughters to go because no men allowed. It had very strict rules and regulations, women only. And it had some of the leading women of that time. They had people living there like Grace Kelly, Sylvia Plath, who wrote The Bell Jar, which is the fictionalized version of what the Barbizon was all about. Esther Greenwood. There were so many incredible women. Gail Green, who lived there in this hotel, which came to life in the 1920s, 1928. And it was the most unique place. But I'm curious, Paulina, what made you think about the Barbizon all the later? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm delighted. And yes, actually, the paperback came out just a month or two ago. So it's true, the book Good. is a year old, but the paperback is out. What made me want to write about the Barbizon? I mean, it had to be written about. Um, it's it's such an important place. Um, it was a place that really was sort of an incubator for, for, as you noted, these women who became famous later. But it was also fascinating to see them sort of in that milieu, being young, vulnerable, scared like everybody else, um, coming to New York to sort of try to act out their ambition. So it needed to be uh, written. Of course, I thought, well, you know, famous hotel, famous women stay there. There are going to be so many records left of the time. Not at all. Everything disappeared. There are no blueprints. There are no guest registries, nothing. And so I have to say it was a real adventure sort of trying to build this hotel back in a sense using interviews and, and, and photographs and, and letters I found and office memos and so forth. So it was a real plethora of, of um, investigation, I would say. But it was, it was exciting. And it's, it's, you know, it, has its, it has its place now. The Barbizon has its history. And it's also a history of New York through the 20th century. It's a history of, of the women's experience through the 20th century. Right. And a lot of people today don't realize that then 
Mademoiselle magazine, and magazines were such a major part of all oh, of yeah. our lives. And the Barbizon was where Mademoiselle put up their winners every year mm-hmm. of the guest editor contest. And one of the exactly. leading secretarial schools in the world. I remember I got out of Barnett College and I was expected not to get an MBA, but to go to one of these major exactly. schools. Right? Yes, exactly. All of this is forgotten. And it's interesting, you, you bring up Mademoiselle Magazine, and that was a key way for me to literally enter the hotel was through Mademoiselle Magazine. But I was surprised because I remembered Mademoiselle Magazine from the 80s when it was, you know, it was sort of a B-rated magazine mm-hmm. at best, sort of a fluffy teenage young woman right. um, magazine. I hadn't realized it had this remarkable history where it was not, not only was it a pioneer in so many ways and it, it created the concept of, of a youth market, but it also in many ways, because the, the woman who ran it, um, Betsy Talbot Blackwell, who, who was editor-in-chief from the 1930s until 1917. She was remarkable. And one of the things she did, well, well, she did many things, but one of them, simply, they didn't have much of a budget for fiction for, um, to, to pay writers. So they ended up really having cutting-edge fiction in Mademoiselle because they could pay those writers less. And then they, of course, became famous later. So the magazine was really – was was just top-notch in terms of fashion, but also in terms of literature. And it was why women, young women like Sylvia Plath and Joan Didion, were desperate to get one of these famed summer internships at Mademoiselle Magazine, because if you wanted to be a writer, you wanted to be an artist, you, you wanted to win that competition and be brought to New York and sort of shadow the editors at Mademoiselle Magazine and stay at the Barbizon Hotel and Betsy Talbot Blackwell had intentionally decided when this program started um, in the 1940s, she decided that it was vital that the women, the young women who win the, this prize, that they stay at the Barbizon because it was the only way she could get parents to sign off that their little girls came to New York without chaperones. And that was right, a big and- thing then. And they weren't girls of enormous wealth. They were mostly ambitious, middle-class girls. And if they wanted to stay there, it wasn't like a done deal. You had to get into that hotel. Yes, exactly, exactly. And in fact, there was... you're absolutely right to point out that these these uh, competition winners at Mademoiselle Magazine who are staying at the Barbizon, they really did come from from middle class, working class backgrounds. They would not have been able to stay at the Barbizon otherwise, um, but they were often also shocked because the internship didn't pay that much. So they were really scrounging. Luckily, they w- w- were invited as part of their, their time in New York. They were invited to these lunches and dinners and sort of all these all these events where they make sure they ate um so that was that was really important but yeah they um you know what i also try to do in the book is juxtapose somebody famous with a a friend who was there also as part part often as part of the program um with a friend who was 
from a very different background. And sort of so that we could really see. So, for example, for Joan Didion, um, I juxtapose her with her best friend from Berkeley, um, Peggy LaVillette. And, and it's really interesting to see it this way. In the same way, Sylvia Plath, I really contrast with Neva Nelson. And we always talk about um, Sylvia Plath who, of course, as you rightly said, wrote The Bell Jar, which is, a, I mean, a spot-on description, basically, of her time there. Um, and so with Sylvia Plath, we often talk about her father died when she was young, and, and her mother uh, ran secretarial courses to keep the, the family in sort of that middle-class mode and so forth. But one of the women who was there at the Barbizon and at, at Mademoiselle in 1953 with Sylvia Plath was Neva Nelson. Neva came from far worse background. She had grown up in the in the foster system in, in California. Her parents were alive, but they were alcoholics. They couldn't take care of her. She was in and out of foster homes. By high school, she was living in a motel. You know, and she managed through this competition to get herself to New York and stay in the Barbizon alongside uh, Sylvia Plath and, and, and others who became well-known later. So, it, yeah, it was sort of these remarkable stories that took place inside this hotel. I know. Felicia Richard yes. and Liza Minnelli. You had absolutely everyone. And yep. the, you just didn't check into the hotel. They had to approve you at the desk. Yes. Yes, exactly. And there was that you were great as ABC. And a lot of people speculated that had to do with your looks. It actually had to do with your age. So if if you were sort of 22 and under, you were an A. So you can imagine what a C and a D was. Um, mm. and because they also, they the hotel wanted to keep up its image, its image of the most glamorous women's hotel in New York, even though the reality behind those walls was very different. This was their sort of public face. And so it was important to management that they bring in young women. Indeed, the hotel was called the Doll's House in the 1950s. A lot of models and actresses stayed there, so it was known for this. Um, so they would bring in young women. Of course, it depended on what time of year you, you arrived and tried to get a room. The rush, of course, was sort of August, September, October. But if you arrived in February and you were in your 30s, <laughs> you had a much better shot. Right. And they had a, a coffee shop, which yeah. was very desirable because you could <laughs> sit alone or you could pick someone up. There were always men in the lobby of this hotel. Oh, exactly. As you said, men could not go beyond the lobby. And, of course, they tried. And there were many famous incidents of, of men claiming they had made it up past the lobby. But what I also sort of quintessential Barbizon is the way it was built. It was this Italianate lobby inlaid floor. And it also had a mezzanine level, which was a wraparound balcony. And so it was perfect for the young women to look down and see other women's dates. But also, some women, they, they use that to check out a blind date they had. And if they didn't like what they saw, they would sort of run back to their rooms or they'd leave the Barbizon through the coffee shop. That was another way out. And yeah, right, the coffee shop, I mean, J.D. Salinger would, would look there and pretend he was a Canadian hockey player to pick up women. Um, it was the place to be to to be seen, but also exactly as you say, 
um, Sylvia Plath sort of famously talks about how she was sort of sitting in that coffee shop having her morning coffee on the day of the Rosenbergs' uh, execution, how upset she was. Um, mm. It's both in her in her diary and also in, in the bell jar. So, it, yes, it, it was a very important appendage to the Barbizon. And when you found the women, some of who are gone, long gone, of course, were they eager to talk to you? Um, to let me see. Yes, they 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 were eager to talk to me, and and um, particularly, uh, I have to you know do a shout out to Neva Nelson, who, as I say, was there with Sylvia Plath, and had a very sort of hard knocks life up until then. Um, she had decided at a certain point to try to locate the other women in the Sylvia Plath group. And so she had sort of become a little bit of an archivist, um, and she was super helpful. And women were willing to talk, and but it was really, it w- when you write about a time that, and the women you write about are still alive, you have a certain responsibility. I certainly feel that way. So when my book uh, first came out, just as a as a sort of a draft, the reader's copy that they send out, um, I made sure I sent out a reader's copy to each of the women that I interviewed. And of course, I was terrified that they, because they'd had really bad experiences before with other books. And they, that was one reason a lot of them were reluctant, particularly the 1953 Sylvia Plath Barbizon group were very reluctant to speak initially because of their bad experiences. So I sent it out. And what was, I have to say, that was probably my, my greatest, happiest moment was that so many of them wrote to me and said, you know, for the first time, I feel seen and I understand my own decisions at the time because I see it within the larger picture. And that's really, and in many ways, it was a great relief for them. Some of them made decisions that they weren't too happy about, but they realized the pressure under which they were living at the time, sort of, you know, the way one internalizes one's decisions and forgets that it's part of the zeitgeist, you know, it's part you don't have that many choices or you feel you don't have them. And so um, that was really gratifying to feel like I'd sort of nailed it and they were telling me that I'd nailed it. So that was lovely. Yes, and, and you found it. I mean, the cultural institutions of the time, mm-hmm. to, when I got out of Barnet, unless you wanted to be a doctor, you know, or a lawyer, right? you definitely went, if you could afford it, to secretarial school. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And Katie Gibbs, of course, was the most the famous one. one. And that's and Katie Gibbs was so popular in the 1930s, particularly uh, when all these women who had indeed graduated from Barnard, graduated from Vassar. But it was the Great Depression that, that and that bachelor's degree was meaningless. They needed secretarial school. So Katie Gibbs, in fact, became more competitive to get in than Barnard and Vassar and so forth because it gave you a certificate with which you could actually find a job. And it, it exploded. I mean, it, it you know expanded so much because of this, with these uh, women now clamoring to, to, to um, get in, that they actually um, used two and then three floors of the Barbizon as the dormitory for Katie Gibbs in New York. So you really had this, you know, and a lot of models as well started to come in in the 1930s as well, because it was... One of the, as the Great Depression, 
you know, was sort of dragging out, um, the idea that women were taking men's jobs, of course, became very resonant to the public. And so women sort of had to try to take jobs that men couldn't have, right? So by then, secretarial work was seen as women's work, so that was okay. And also modeling started to enter the picture. And of course, women models, right? A job that women (laughs) could do. Um, uh-huh. So you you see you see this sort of flurry of models and 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 Katie Gibbs secretarial students with their white gloves and their hats they were not allowed to remove not even in the subway they had to have a certain image so of course this also built up the image of the Barbizon without question and the no men rule when mm-hmm. they looked back was that restriction. In many ways, although men try to get in all the time, disguised oh, as doctors and whatever. Exactly, as, as gynecologists, exactly, on call. Um, uh, did they, could you, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? No, did they think the men only rule was a plus oh, or a negative yes, in those years? Of course. Well, that's the thing, depends which year, right? So you, it was definitely, I mean, at the beginning, up, up until the early 1960s, it was an absolute plus because that restrictive rule meant freedom for women because it meant respectability. The hotel was seen as respectable because men were not allowed in beyond the lobby. And with respectability, women got freedom. And it's exactly the thinking that Betsy Talbot um, had in in terms of bringing the the Mademoiselle interns into into the Barbizon was because it was seen as respectable and therefore give them the freedom to come to New York. So, but that that link between restriction, sort of a nunnery, right? Restriction and freedom started to melt away. Of course, in the 1960s, women had more options. Um, women were not so keen on being somewhere where they couldn't invite men up to their room. And at the same time, by the, certainly by the 1970s, um, the hotel, just like New York, is starting to show real wear and tear. Meg Wallitzer, the writer, she was the last in the last group in 1979 for Mademoiselle magazine. And she wrote a wonderful thing about that summer. And she said, New York was looking like an episode of Kojak. So, um, yeah, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful line. So actually by 1981, because women were not as keen to stay there anymore and the occupancy rates were so low, they had to bring men in. And there was a lot of kickback, but it was the only option. And they did this sort of um, very public raffle where the first man and the first couple uh, it was on val- yeah. it was on Valentine's Day, and they had balloons and music and cake, and then they gave the key to the first man and the key to the first couple, and they ran into the hotel and up beyond the lobby, right? Uh, so it's this big thing. But um, after that, actually, soon after that, the hotel closed down for multiple renovations, sort of turning itself into a regular hotel, and. Each time, it didn't quite work. And eventually, um, the hotel in the early 2000s, like, of course, at that point now, we went from sort of Kojak, New York, to increasingly expensive, much sought after New York. 
And so a lot of the hotel owners were turning their hotels into luxury condo buildings. And that's exactly what happened to the Barbizon. But what is fascinating is that as the renovations began in the 1980s and dragged on for about two decades before it the building was turned into a condo building. During this whole time, you still had these women, right, who had contracts, right. who who were living at the Barbizon. And when this, these, these renovations started to happen, they hired a good tenant lawyer who discovered that their rooms are considered by New York law rent control rooms. So, so they, they couldn't move. They couldn't be moved, or rather they couldn't be moved out. And so it's fascinating as the hotel was being renovated in in this multiple versions of the 80s and the 90s where on most floors if you went to the end of the hallway opened the door behind it was the old barbazon with the old paint mm-hmm. and the old women <laughs> incredible incredible and um, finally, in the early 2000s, when uh, it was going to be turned into condo and they had to completely gut it, I mean, it's, it's nothing like it used to look, um, when they had to gut it, they moved the women out to another hotel and then moved them back in. And they have, there are about four, I believe, left now. I and they can't have believe it. Still own, I know, they have their own floor, beautifully renovated apartments, huge terrace. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, it's, it's funny because the, the, they were called these older women who stayed on and on and on at the hotel were called from the time the Plath was there. They were called the women and they were everybody's nightmare because, of course, the Barbizon was supposed to be this launching pad for your ambition. If you were still there, the idea was that you, you you'd failed. Right. And so nobody wanted to be like the women. And, of course, the irony is that the women won out because they have their luxury uh, condo apartments exactly in New York today. It was fantastic. And the Barbizon, the hotel that set women free, now in paperback. But there were such good stories in it. I like um, when Liza Minnelli lived there, her mother, Judy Garland, (laughs) took care of that. And then you say... The desk went crazy because she called every three hours to check on her. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. And you're going to find out that, yes, some of these ladies are still alive, living in their multi-million dollar places (laughs) now. So, yes, they won in the end. Continued success. Thank you for the book, and I look forward to talking to you again. Wonderful. Thank you, Sully. Thank you. Bye-bye now. pleasure. Bye-bye. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Well, we're coming to the end of the season. It's true, Labor Day. We're coming to the end of the show. And boy, it's been busy. Out on the east end of Long Island, the horse show, which always says summer's over. In fact, the Grand Prix is winding up with all those gorgeous jumpers. I actually went to the horse show um, one day when they had adoption day for 
llamas, ponies, dogs, everything you can think of, cats. There was a little black and white pony. It took all my strength not to take him home. It was the cutest pony. He actually gave you kisses. I wanted to bring him home for Stella, my granddaughter. Can you imagine? My children would never forgive me. And, of course, you need to take care of a pony. It's like taking care of a horse. You need a barn. You need food. You need a vet. Anyway, absolutely charming. And the horse show is a great event. It was really fun to see. And there's so much stuff on the East End. My gosh, Bay Street, wonderful show. They have ragtime and people loving it. There's a lot going on. And there's a lot of eating. If you've never been to Romp, which is a gourmet store out here, you've got to take yourself over. They have fabulous things, including the most delicious chicken salad and the most delicious cookies. And don't forget, it's like going to a museum. Also, to go to Loaves and Fishes on Sag Main Street and look at that gorgeous food. And they have a restaurant that is so lovely with a beautiful garden. Many of you don't even know they have that, the Loaves and Fishes restaurant. It's something you definitely will enjoy. And we've been going and sitting in the garden of Tuto Al Giorno. And they make Italian fish soup. They do a fabulous stock with mussels and clams and lobster and scallops. Really delicious. As always, a lot of eating here. And the area is just packed. But the fall is a wonderful time to go to Litchfield, Connecticut, to go upstate, New York, take a look at the Adirondack area, do things you haven't done because once we pass Labor Day, things really quiet down and it's special. I know I'll be very excited to go back to the city I've spent some time on the East End and start going to theater again and doing the things that I didn't do so much in the summer. And, you know, we're living a whole different life. I know my son had a movie that opened called Me Time and you didn't go to a theater to see it, which in my estimation, is a pity because when you do comedy or watch comedy, you need a big audience. You need people to laugh so you can share in it. And we've changed the way we go to movies and the way we watch stand-up. I have a lot of friends who are stand-up comics, and it's hard on them streaming it or doing it where people are watching you from their couches or under the covers. It's a whole different time, but it's okay. We're going to hope that we're finished, although I'm not sure we are with COVID, and try to resume a normal life. They're coming up with new injections, with new treatments for everything. So hopefully 
all of us will be among the lucky recipients. And meanwhile, I'm wishing you a very happy Labor Day, and you can enjoy WABC all day long. We have great programs. And, of course, right ahead of me is my friend Cindy Adams. If you've never listened to Cindy, you're in for a treat. She is so funny and so real, so you definitely want to do that. And enjoy everything they have on WABC. I love being with you, and here's to a new season, a new year, all good things I'm wishing for each and every one. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to what I hope is your favorite WABC on the AM dial.